Well, we're going to start this sermon series contrasting, distinguishing. What does a person look like who has been gripped by the gospel of Jesus Christ versus what does a person look like who's just been gripped with religion? So gospel versus religion, I've entitled this Opposite Directions as we launch this series God has laid this upon my heart, so excited to begin this. It'll be projected overhead on your phones. If you have your Bibles, that is best. If you would turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 2 with me, verses 4 through 10. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. I will read it for us. This is our act of worship as we give it our full attention. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. I want to begin by asking you this question. Who hated Jesus most? Oh, we're going to start like that today, huh, Pastor? Just start with a light question. <laughs> who hated Jesus most? Who wanted to get rid of him most? Who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? There's an anti-Semitic version that says, look at the Jews. You see, it was the Jews, the Jewish people who killed Jesus. You read Matthew chapter 27 and the record of the Gospels, that is not the case. Religious people kill Jesus. Religious people kill Jesus. Religious experts, teachers, leaders, and followers. In Matthew chapter 27, they had this notorious criminal by the name of Barabbas and the religious leaders stirred up the crowds to say, we'd rather you set free Barabbas, but put Jesus away to be crucified. Religious people killed Jesus. Uh, people who read and understand and quote the Bible, they kill Jesus. People who make a living off of being respected or standing up and leading or teaching from the Bible. They, they're the ones that kill Jesus. People who pray. People who talk and look and dress and act right. People with good families. People who fast. People who give offerings. And they actually do help the poor. Religious people kill Jesus. That's what the Bible reveals. 
if you read the Bible further, you're going to begin to find that this Jesus Christ was awfully friendly and welcoming, and I would say just beyond belief lenient with non-religious people. It just happens over and over and over and over again. Jesus was really friendly and welcoming with unchurched people. But he was downright offensive and hostile toward the religious. And that feeling was mutual. Who killed Jesus? Not non-religious people, folks. It's the ones who know all about religion and breathe it. Every usage of the word religion is not wrong in and of itself. That's not what I'm trying to say. James chapter 1 verse 27 says, There is such a thing as pure and undefiled religion. There is one perfect and pure form of it. It's to look after widows and orphans and to remain unstained from this world. It's about purity and compassion. Because if you really get religion the way that God intended it, it actually makes you a person that will heal and save and deliver and rescue those who are most needy in this world. But Jesus has been and will always be dead set. He is dead set against fake religions, ineffective religions, man-made religions that promise one thing but turn out to be entirely something else. See, my morning, what I want... Uh, This morning, what I want to present to you as we launch this series is Jesus is dead set against just going to church religion that really does not make you a different person at all. Let me give us an overview then of gospel versus religion. Gospel versus religion. In essence, religion is all about you. From start to finish, from top to bottom. Religious people love lessons, love going to church if it really just centers back upon you. Gospel, in essence, is all about Jesus. Religion is about you. Gospel is about Jesus. In religion, you base and you build your identity and self-worth upon what you do. How good of a person are you? Like this last week. How good of a person do you appear to be? Being a good person is key in religion. In the gospel, you receive a whole new identity and an infinite self-worth from somebody else. In religion, you build yourself up based on what you do. In the gospel, you get a whole new identity and self-worth from somebody else. Religious people love to see there's good people in the world. Of course, I'm one of them. And there's always good people in here. You see, in here, in the church, in a physical building, a location like this. While all the bad, wicked, unregenerate people are out there. Are you following with me? In religion, you see good people versus bad people. Good people is me, bad uh, good people is me, bad people is you. But when you start to get the gospel, when the gospel starts to percolate and start to change even how you think, 
the gospel gets you to see, finally, oh, there's actually only people who still think they're good, and then there's people who finally recognize they're not. In religion, there's good people in here and bad people out there. In the gospel, it actually helps you to see there's only good people who still think they're so good, and then there's people who know that they're not. Religion motivates you with pride and fear. The gospel will motivate you with love and gratitude. Religious people will act inconsistently, differently, when they're away from a religious place. Religion can only make you good up to a certain point. You see, religion will make you act the part, look the part, smell the part, say the part in a side of church. But when you're at home or when you're at work or on the street and caught in traffic, it makes you utterly inconsistent. But do you know what the gospel can bring? A whole integrity, a consistency, a reality of the life of God. Religion versus gospel. Religious people get outraged and embittered and they fall away from God when they suffer. Gospel people get humbled and get better and they fall into the very arms of God in suffering. Religious people live like they're owners. They're the kings of the world and the queens of the universe. You own your time and talents and treasures. But when the gospel starts to seep in, you live as a faithful manager or steward. Religious folks are controversial all the time because of all the wrong reasons. Religious people are unnecessarily polarizing. Religious people love controversy for controversy's sake. Gospel people are controversial because of Jesus Christ. At the end of these two roads, my friends, and I assure you, they're totally two drastically different roads. They're absolutely opposite directions. Religion leads to frustration, regret, and death. While the gospel of Jesus Christ will lead you to eternal abundant life, joy, and love. So I hope you're with me as we launch into the series of gospel versus religion. Because they're different. But many people, especially church people, think they're the same. You might have been attending this church for 10 years or 12 years, just like me. You have up to this point never been able to tell the difference between gospel and religion, let alone ever see or experience its change in you. Because the gospel often gets conflated and confused with the gospel. Uh, uh, the gospel gets confused or conflated with religion. And sometimes religion just outright replaces the gospel. Oh, so today, we have a story as we go back into the life story of Jacob. We're going to project Genesis chapter 20, verses 10 through 12. And I want to read this for us. J Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. 
Jacob had a dream, Jacob's ladder that linked heaven and earth. Now, I want to tell you, Jacob was not the only ancient figure who conceived or dreamt of a ladder that reached up into heaven. As far as I can find, every great religious founder has conceived of a ladder-like approach to God. Every founder of every great world religion has dreamt of or taught and passed along a ladder-like approach into heaven to be with God. We heard from Phil, Buddhism, rampantly popular in Asia. And those in the West who want to be Eastern, they get very enamored with Buddhism. He taught the noble eightfold path. In it, you relinquish your earthly desires and there's endless rituals and spinning prayer wheels. And then maybe, hopefully, you'll reach a state of nirvana, you see, in Buddhism. By hard work, you climb a ladder. In Islam, in Islam, by the way, do you know which nation in the world has the highest Muslim population today? Do you know which nation has the highest Muslim population? I know you're probably going to think it's got to be the Middle East. No, it's actually where Brian and Angie Huang serve as our supported missionaries. Indonesia, Indonesia, that's right. I heard someone say that. Show off. (laughs) Indonesia. By 2050, it's projected to be overtaken by a rapidly rising Muslim population in India. India will probably uh, surpass Indonesia very soon. But in Islam, you have five pillars, some of which include you got to say your prayers at the right time, fast, don't eat food at certain times, obey, and you should take a pilgrimage. You better take a pilgrimage to one physical location in the world. You see... Just as Buddha taught, by hard work, you might ascend into nirvana. In Islam, through hard work, you climb. At the heart of Hinduism is another ladder. Oh, it's absolutely just another ladder. There's a law of karma. Karma is if you're a good person and you do good things, good things should come back and fall upon you. But if you are full of bad deeds, then you will be repaid. Watch out. There's a law of karma at work. Buddhism, you better climb. Islam, you better climb. Hinduism, you better go to the temple, bring and burn your offerings to the, go- to the gods because that's how you climb. Oh, my Jewish friends, Orthodox Jews, they live by what they call the Torah, the Torah, which is the law. And at the center of it is the Ten Commandments. And in Judaism, it is very simple and clear. Obey the law, then God will bless you. Keep memorizing and teaching it to your spouses and your children, and they better not veer to the right or to the left from the law, the Torah. And if you do, then God will bless love you and reward you you climb the ladder by obedience to the law now so far if you've been paying any attention some of you if you're honest you're thinking to yourself oh this is the exact same thing as christianity same same this is all the same christianity is just another ladder that you climb here's how you climb it read the bible pray you better be good to your spouse your kids better be well behaved give some money to church Go to church, go to church. You better go to a lot of church. Be a good person and don't be a bad person. Just become a better you. You climb another ladder. 
Oh, but Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, let me read that for us as we project it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Oh, listen, pay attention, my friends. Don't these two verses look and sound different? Don't these two verses announce something different than your usual religion? You see, because at the heart of Christianity is a cross, it's not a ladder. At the heart of Christianity is a cross, not a ladder. Jesus Christ is the only founder of any religion that came to undo our ladder-like approach to God. Jesus Christ is the only founder of the only religion that came to completely undo our ladder-like ascent into heaven. And he came to replace it with something totally different, with something that cost him everything. Back to Jacob's ladder in Genesis chapter 28. How is Jacob's ladder different from every other religious ladder? Well, you got to understand some of his story. Jacob was a twin brother, and from the womb, from his parents, Abraham and Rebekah, Jacob was wrestling and fighting with his older brother Esau. The Bible tells us, by nature, this one was relentless. He was very, very aggressive. He will do anything to get ahead and get what he wants to get. And so this, I will get ahead at any cost. It doesn't matter what it takes. As long as I get the result, you take that kind of nature in young little Jacob. And then you combine that with the rotten nurture of his dad. Of his dad. Isaac, excuse me. Isaac and Rebekah. And Isaac clearly favored his older brother Esau. So Jacob grew up with a huge, I got something to prove. And when he did grow up, he actually ends up deceiving his own brother, taking advantage of his blind dad to get a blessing that did not belong to him. True story. Jacob took advantage of his hungry, starving brother and approached his blind father to get the blessing that was only due to his older brother. And so as a result, he's so detested, he's so despised, he's so hated, he had to run far away from his family and homeland. And on his way back home, That's what we started to read in verse 10. On his way back home, Jacob finds himself without family or friend. Night surrounds him. And yet of all the people in the world, God decides to appear to, show up to, and speak with. It's with Jacob. God decided to appear and show up and speak with the younger, not the firstborn. It's with the scoundrel, not a saint. So we pick up in verses 13 through 15 of Genesis chapter 28. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, the ladder, it sounds like above the ladder, and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. 
The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God showed up and spoke such stunning verbal promises to Jacob. He's a lonely, despised wanderer. To him, he says, I'm going to give you a new home. I'm going to give you a homeland. To a single young man, no dating in sight yet. He says, you're going to have so many offspring of children. They're going to outnumber the dust. You're going to become a great nation. And then the kid who was most likely to deceive, not most likely to succeed. The most likely to deceive, God promises him, wherever you're going to go, you're going to be a blessing. Now I want you to notice here, back up in verse 13 and the first part, in addition to the stunning verbal vows, none of which Jacob could ever expect or deserve, God offers it even a better visual. I know in the English, the way it is translated, it sounds like, where is God in Jacob's ladder? It sounds like he's above it. He's above at the top of the ladder. I learned from Hebrew scholars and in seminary that a better translation would be that the Lord stood above him. Meaning, God wasn't at the top of the ladder. He came all the way to the bottom of the ladder to stand directly over Jacob. Or in other words, he stood beside Jacob. The better translation is not that God was waiting at the top of the ladder. No, 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 no. In Jacob's ladder, he came all the way down to stand right beside Jacob at the bottom. Now, why would God come all the way down Jacob's ladder? What's this ladder really for? Well, think about it with me, my friends. What's Jacob's ladder really for? You see, if Jacob could climb up the ladder and get to the top to meet with God, there was no reason for God to come all the way down. If Jacob's ladder, the purpose of that, that dream, was to show and tell Jacob, you'd better climb, hopefully you're going to make it up to me then there was no reason for God to come to the bottom. You see, Jacob's ladder is not something you climb. It's about someone who carries you up. The whole purpose and point of Jacob's ladder, this story, is not something that you climb. It's about someone who carries you up. Religion tells you to climb. The gospel tells you grace comes down. These are opposite directions. Religion tells you you'd better climb up. But the gospel tells you God came down. Because in Romans chapter 3 verse 10 it reads for us there is none righteous. No, not one. No, not one. What that verse is telling us is no one will make it to the top. No one is able enough, competent enough, faithful enough, praying enough, religious enough, strong enough, pure enough. No one, no one, no one, no one is going to climb all the way up to the top. No one. 
My friends, that's why Jesus had to come down. If no one could make it to the top, Jesus Christ will come down the ladder to take all my sin, all my shame, all my suffering upon a cross. And the cross is God's way of telling you and me, and it's his way of accepting people who have lived unacceptably. When you understand this gospel, my friend, when the gospel rings loud and clear, and it sets off an explosion in your heart, and it begins to utterly change your life in a way that religion never can, you will never again try to meet with God at the top of a ladder. You're going to meet Him at the foot of a cross. When the gospel starts really sweeping into your life, you will no longer look for and strive and proudly even demand, give me it away to get up there. No, you'll actually fall on your knees. Beg for mercy as we sang. And meet with the Savior at the way bottom. And grace will come rushing down upon you. And the next slide, please. Jacob's ladder is not something you climb. It's about someone who carries you up. So, awestruck by God... And his grace. That's what changed Jacob for good. He was a cheater, a thief, a swindler, a liar by nature. And after this dream of God visiting him at the bottom of the ladder, he vowed to give from here on, I'm going to give a tenth everything back to God. That is amazing for someone like Jacob. If you read the rest of Genesis 28, he vows a tenth of everything he has to the Lord. And this is why in the New Testament, the gospel reads like this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Gospel will always bring about more and better and more genuine good works than religion ever could. The gospel will change Jacob's life for good, and it can change yours too. Because after Genesis chapter 28, Jacob starts to work really hard. He works hard for his wages. He actually works all the way for 14 years from Laban to marry the love of his life, Rachel, which we heard about a couple weeks ago. He will no longer cheat so much. Instead, he gets cheated himself. Now, Jacob, of course, does have relapses like every other human being on the planet. Because you become a Christian does not mean that you don't relapse and fall and stumble or sin along the way. So does Jacob. But he is so programmatically, definitively changed for good that when he does relapse in the future, God continues to visit him and shower grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And he takes two steps forward for every step he took backwards. How does this kind of grace come down for you? My friend, this morning, I'm just asking you, how does the gospel really work in you? How do you receive this kind of life from God in heaven while you're walking and living through planet Earth the way that Jacob received it in Genesis chapter 28?
Here's how. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus Christ himself came and here's what he announced. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is not talking about anything else but Jacob's ladder in Genesis chapter 28. And Jesus is announcing that he is the reality and the ultimate fulfillment of Jacob's ladder in which you don't climb, but it's about someone who came all the way down to carry you up. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. See the sweet, life-saving movement of the gospel. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, dead in our trespasses. Dead men don't get up. Dead men don't cry. Dead men don't climb. Dead men don't pray. Dead men are dead. Dead. You're at rock bottom, but God came down in Jesus and made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of Jacob's ladder. And Jesus is the one who came down, all the way down, to pick and carry and raise me up with him to the highest places. How do you get this? How does this happen? How does grace come falling down upon you? By faith. Not by your works. Let me say that again. How does the gospel work in your life? By faith, not your own doing. How does the gospel become active and real in your life and my life? By faith, not by works. You could say this. Faith is trusting and resting in someone else's works. Just not your own. Faith is trusting and resting in someone else's works, a Savior's works. Just not your own. I've told some of you this before. My family, very, very religious and engaged in a church. Went to a church in downtown Los Angeles since I was a little boy. We actually used to live right behind the track of Cerritos High School up until about third grade. It's a homecoming for me to live in Cerritos. My daughters go to Cerritos High School. I cannot believe that. And then we moved to South Torrance. At both houses, from what I remember, my bedroom was on the second, room, uh, second floor. You had to go climb up a bunch of stairs to get into my bedroom. And uh, every Sunday, uh, I lived the life, man. I loved church. I loved, absolutely loved church. Not because of God or Jesus or Holy Spirit. It's because every Sunday I could go to 7-Eleven and eat their nachos. And then me and my friends would hang out and play video games. And then in this little playground with chain link fences around it, we played just tag or tackle football all day from morning till night. The average time... 
Our family return back home was 8 to 9 p.m. I remember my dad had a big car, the Oldsmobile, it's a sedan. And I used to just pass out in the back seat. Every Sunday night without fail, I would just pass out. Back then, we didn't care about safety belts. There's no seat belts. You just lounge. It's really comfortable. But as my dad would get near home, this is, we ended up in Torrance, your body can feel when the car slows down, and your body can always feel when it goes up the final bump into your driveway and the car comes to a standstill. No matter how deeply I slept, I was always awake. My dad would get out from the driver's, come back to the back seat, and he'd look at my sweaty, smelly, gnarly face, and he'd look at me, Harold, are you still sleeping? As lazy and as dumb as I am, I would nod yes. (laughs) Because I was so tired, I did not want to climb up the stairs into my bedroom, and I certainly didn't want to have to brush my teeth. And so I remember him coming back, putting me on his back, piggybacking me, carrying me up step by step up those flight of stairs, putting me into bed. Thank you, Jesus. No brushing of teeth. Kiss me on a forehead. Good night. Good night. It was the best night of sleep of my life every Sunday night. This is what faith looks like. This is what you need to do with Jesus. Because the gospel means that the only climbing you need to do is to climb upon his back. When you really get the gospel, you begin to recognize the only climbing I got to do is to get piggybacked all the way up to a place I could never climb for myself. Some of you could do this right now, right here. Oh, you really could. You need to understand, Jesus came down so that you don't have to meet God at the top of a ladder. Lay your deadly doing down. Put your religion down. Put all your sweat and striving and frustration down. Stop hiding and trying to defend and overcompensate for all your sin and shame. Put your broken relationships down. Put your hurt down because Jesus came all the way down for you. I assure you, if there's anybody in this room who is hearing this gospel start to penetrate into your heart, all you need to do is to climb on the back of a Savior and He's going to carry you all the way up. And for those of you who've done that, you know what I'm talking about. You just got to keep doing that and clinging to this every day of your life. Because anyone who gets on the back of Jesus Christ will be changed inside out and you're going to be changed forever. The invitation is wide and free. There's no one here unfit. There's no one here unworthy. There's no one here beneath him. For Christ came all the way down, all the way down for you. Just respond, rest and trust in him. Let me pray for us.
Father in heaven, we thank you for the riches of the kindness and the love that is offered to us in Jesus Christ in your gospel. The good news. The good news. Where we don't have to climb, but you came down to carry us up. Oh Lord, would you move every mind and heart and life toward you this day? Only you can do that. Lord, please grant salvation and life. Replace the regret and shame and death. Give us Jesus. Can I give you a couple seconds and moments to respond in prayer with me from your heart? The prayer that Jesus will never reject. The prayer that Jesus loves most. The prayer that he died for is simply Jesus. I need you to save me. I need you to save me. I need you to love me. I got no outs here. I got no solutions. I don't have my smarts. I don't have any sweat left. I need you to come down and save me. He died to answer that prayer. Pray with me as we respond.